1: My name is Cade Courtley, and this is Can You Survive This Podcast? The show is designed to teach you techniques that will increase your chances of survival if you happen to find yourself or your family in any life threatening disaster scenario imaginable. Each episode will put you smack in the middle of a new disaster scenario as I challenge my guests to see if they have what it takes to get out alive. Knowledge is power, people. Can you survive this podcast? My fellow survivors, if you hear my voice, it means you are still alive and it continues to be my mission to keep it that way. Folks, I'm Cade Courtley. Welcome to another episode of Can You Survive This Podcast? Folks, we have an amazing, amazing guest today. We've got a Marine veteran, highly decorated Marine veteran, multiple deployments to Iraq, Afghanistan. In addition to having a very highly decorated career This individual won a bronze medal in rowing. We'll get into that. He rode his bike by himself, supported, but a solo ride across the United States, over 5,100 miles. And if that's not enough, this guy did 31 marathons in 31 days, and he did it all with two prosthetic legs. Ladies and gentlemen... Welcome Rob Jones to the show. Rob, thanks for being here, buddy. Thanks a lot for having me, brother. I really appreciate it. I, I have never felt like more of a shit bag in my life than after reading that intro. I'm like, I am I am so not even getting close to my potential after hearing that. That's incredible.
0: I don't know, man. You've written a book. I haven't written any books yet. Dude.
1: <laughs> you can write a book in your basement. You ran 31 marathons in 31 days with two prosthetic legs. That's insane. I do, have, I do have a first draft
0: written, so I'm not too far behind you. So you are going to use, lose that little bit of edge, I guess.
1: <laughs> what, uh, what's the title of it? Do you have a working title or have you figured that out yet?
0: Um, survive, recover, live is the working title. Uh, and that's just kind of a, it's a mantra that I came up with, I guess, in my first week out of the, out of the ICU after I kind of started getting my senses back. I, just, I think I just went on Facebook probably a little bit half high on morphine and just typed out like, well, I just came up with a mantra, survive, recover, live. And uh, so I've kind of used that in a lot of my uh, things that I've done, that mantra.
1: Well, I, I can't wait to get into that here in a minute. But uh, explain to folks, so you were in the Marine Corps. You were with a uh, construction battalion unit. Is that accurate? Um, or sort well,
0: of. I mean, c- comment. I'm sure, you know we cover many, many, many disciplines. Part of that discipline uh, is construction, but generally, the unit that I was with was a CEB unit, and CEBs come into your battalion. Usually, those are primarily tasked with using explosives and uh, route clearance, kind of in direct uh, attachment to infantry battalions. So, if they needed us to, you know, do some construction, we could certainly do that, but. There are certainly other combat engineer units that are more practiced uh, in construction. So I would say my primary role was uh, route clearance in Afghanistan.
1: So uh, as a combat engineer in Afghanistan, explain what your tasking or your mission was.
0: Yeah, so I would get attached. Basically, we arrived uh, as a platoon uh, along with 3rd Battalion, 7th Marine Corps Regiment. And then each one of our squads went with one of the companies, uh, so I was attached to Kilo Company three seven, and they would just they just sent me out with a platoon, and we lived with them, you know, at the FOB that they were at, um, and then eventually when we moved from Delaram, Afghanistan to starting to do a push into Seng in Afghanistan, um, again I was just a I was just living with um, um, third platoon of uh, Kilo Company. And basically how it would work would be any time that we were out and we thought that there was a likelihood that there was an IED in an area that we were about to go through, I would go through and clear it first and then kind of leave a little trail of breadcrumbs behind me. Uh, And when I got to the other side, I would wave everybody else across. We would, we would, the rest of everybody would, would follow my little trail of breadcrumbs. So kind of like if we were going to cross a bridge, uh, going over a big river. Well, the Taliban knows that we're going to have to use that bridge basically. And we're not going to like swim in hundred pounds of gear across the river. So they say, all right, well, they're probably going to, when they go North, they're probably going to use this bridge. So we're going to put our IEDs on this bridge because it's a likely um, avenue that they're going to take. So,
1: well, yeah, they're taking a choke point and taking advantage, taking advantage of it. Now, were you working with EOD
0: Not directly. So basically the way it works, there's a lot less EOD than there are combat engineers and infantry. So basically EOD in a general sense uh, would kind of stay centralized. Mm. And then when we found an IED, if we decided that it was something that they should come out for, we would call them and then they would come and take care of it, uh, whether it was blowing it in place or sometimes they'd remove it if it was a danger to civilians. Um, Now there would be certain times where, if you're doing a really big push, you're doing a big clearance operation, EOD can go out there and find IEDs as well. Uh, they have the training on metal detectors. Uh, but generally, they would kind of wait for us to call them.
1: So your SOP was basically, if we think there's something there, we're just going to blow it in place. There's none of this like you see in the movies. People are like, oh, he's out there. He's cutting the blue wire. No, you're you're blowing it in place, right? Is that accurate? or?
0: Yeah. I, we would pass off responsibility for that decision to EOD after we uncover the ID. So basically, in order to confirm that you should call EOD, you do have to go in with your fingers and and actually move the dirt around and actually see something that you think is an IED. Okay. So, you know, if we saw – if I would use a metal detector. So if I was sweeping and I got a metal hit and then I knelt down and I kind of moved the dirt around and I see – the top of a jug or a shampoo bottle or a battery <clears throat> at that point, I'm like, okay, this is probably an IED. So at that point, you know, I can make the decision to let EOD come out or we can make the decision to uncover it as much as we can, you know, do them a little favor and uncover everything. Cause once you know where all the components are, you know, if you're careful, there's not a whole lot of danger if it's just a pressure plate.
1: Um, what about a remote detonation though? I mean, having to worry about, okay, I'm down here clear I'm going down here clearing this thing and there might be some asshole with a cell phone you know over over on that hill.
0: That's a possibility and and usually um if we were with vehicles, you know, we have jammers. Mm-hmm. Um and we had man-packable jammers. I don't know that we really I don't recall if we actually used them. I know I didn't have one on my back. I probably should have, you know, since I was the IED guy, I probably should have just been like, give me one of them jammers.
1: Yeah. Until you have a uh, brain tumor, the size of a, uh, a, 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 you know, a cue ball.
0: That's true too. <laughs> I don't die from an IED. I'll die from a brain cancer. Right. Um, but generally speaking, I mean, we kind of, you kind of go based on statistics too. Like 95% of the IEDs out there in our area, were pressure plates. So, you know, and then, you know, if I, if they see me starting to find their ID, they're going to blow it up anyway. So,
1: well, um, we, uh, you know, when we were rolling around in Iraq and they would say, Hey, the last thing you're going to see maybe is just a flash. And that's all you really need to worry about. You got, you got blown up a, a crazy conversation to have, but can you explain the experience from, basically when you woke up, if there's anything, I mean.
0: There was no, I don't remember seeing a flash, to be honest with you. I remember hearing an explosion. So it's kind of interesting because I don't think that it's kind of, I think really what it is is a memory of an explosion really. So I don't remember hearing the explosion in the moment, Mm -hmm. but I do remember an explosion sound and I think it was probably, I don't know. It's, it's it's very, obviously it's very hazy at that point. Cause I got knocked out on un, un, unconscious instantly. Um, and then I woke up 20 seconds later. So I remember hearing an explosion. I guess I heard it in the moment. Um, but yeah. And you know, when you wake up, it's, it's, it's a lot like you would expect. And the movies do a pretty accurate representation of this. Whenever somebody gets hit by an explosion, it's uh it's screaming. Um, it is, You know that kind of visceral scream where all your pride as a man as a marine as a seal or whatever that is out the window i mean you don't have a choice you could be you know how when you somebody pinches your arm or something you can like ah you can kind of hold back your your wince of pain but in this situation the pain is so great it's just your body's my body basically disconnected from my brain i think and it was just kind of going on uh, survival mode at that point. So my, I would like, I wasn't telling my body to scream, but I could hear it. You know what I mean? So I could hear that. That's what I could hear. Um, what I saw was basically tunnel vision, a very, very blurry tunnel vision. Um, and all I could see really was the sky. So it's just a very blurry tunnel that kind of led up to a very bright, uh, bright blue sky.
1: Um, did you deal with sort of the time slowed down? before it kind of caught back up. Despite, I, you know, you hear about a lot of this stuff. People in these crazy life-threatening situations, they're like, it just slowed down to a microsecond at a time.
0: Not is that- really for me because, I mean, the the, the event, the quote-unquote event, I mean, it was an instantaneous thing. And so I really didn't experience the event itself because, you know, the shock waves travel so fast that it just knocked me out instantly. Um, so I didn't really experience the explosion itself. I just experienced waking up afterwards, 20 seconds later. Um, and so really, I didn't really have any experiences at that point. Um, because my, my brain was just totally shut down. I was experiencing my most base emotions, uh, and feelings. I mean, I could, uh, all I could smell and taste was like dust and, and, You know, after an explosion, I'm sure you've smelled a lot of C4 explosions. You know how that kind of—I don't know how
1: to—it's kind of like that cordite
0: taste. Yeah, Yeah. a very unique smell. That's just like this kind of chemically stench. So I could smell that and dust combined. Um, But yeah, I don't. uh, It it, was—I was pretty out of it for 20 seconds, and I was only feeling, and all I could hear was just you know this loud ringing. You know, um, that took over everything. So I don't—I don't remember quite. Like what you're saying where time slowed down, but it was certainly, you know, uh, very discombobulating for sure. Like I wasn't thinking clearly.
1: Did you just instinctively go start doing the body check, like the head to toe or was it, were people on you just like, don't move, stay put?
0: Um, no, I checked. I mean, I probably experienced what I was just talking about for maybe 15, 20 seconds. Um, while my body kind of, I guess I had to pump through the endorphins and go into survival mode, you know? Um, and then once that happened, 20 seconds later, you know, everything started calming down and things started coming back to me. Um, and at that point I could hear my fellow Marines yelling out, you know, we're coming, we're coming. Um, but the, the difficulty in that situation is when you step on an IED, there's almost guaranteed to be guaranteed to be a second or a third one there. So, um, the sad circumstances of this situation is that people can't just run over to you right away Mm -hmm. as much as they want to. And as much as you want them to, they can't just sprint over to you because you know, there's a very good chance that they would hit another IED. And for all we know, that IED could be daisy chained into, you know, and everybody could get killed. So, um, luckily as a combat engineer, what you do is before you start a sweep, you make sure everybody else is offset from you just in case. Um, this kind of thing happens um so really you know there was another engineer in the area that brought him over he swept to me i imagine it was probably a very expedited sweep it's hard to you know sit there and be as meticulous as you need to be when your brother's bleeding out yeah um so they got to me pretty quickly and then you know from there they did life-saving techniques you know um and before they got there, you know, to, to answer your question, I, I checked my hands, you know, I looked, and, you know, saw my hands. So I was like, dang, ten fingers, okay. And then checked the spot where every man's gonna check. Um, and you know, it was uh, <laughs> it was numb. Uh, so I, I didn't, you know, I was unsure of how things were going down there. And then everybody got over to me. Um, they put the tourniquets on, got the shot of morphine from the corpsman. And then at that point, everything really kind—I of, I really calmed down from that. Uh, but at the same time, I just kind of started saying, you know, whatever was on my mind, and I, I asked about my my groin, and you know, I was reassured that it was fine. I actually sat up for a couple seconds to look at my legs. I knew I knew they were going to be gone, parts of them, and I—I I started sitting up to uh, to look, but. I got like maybe 60% of the way and I kind of had that feeling, you know, when you're a kid, you scratch your knee, it doesn't hurt. And then when you look at it, it's like,
1: ah, yeah.
0: Um, I kind of got f- afraid that that was going to happen. I was like, I was feeling okay. And then I sat up to look and I thought, well, if I see my legs, you know, is just going to be like this uh, kind of unbearable pain? So I just laid back down and, and waited for them to put me on a stretcher and, and take me away.
1: So, you're off to the hospital. You're, you're medevaced or you're pulled out of that vehicle. You're in the hospital. Wh- when do you wake up and it starts sinking in? What's happened to you?
0: I mean, I kind of knew on site. I mean, I knew pieces of my legs were missing. And I, I actually asked the guys that were with me, you know, is it, am I above the knee or below the knee because it's a big difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and at site of injury, they told me it was below the knee. But by the time I got back to the hospital, my amputations had to be revised um, so that I was above the knee. So that was a bit of a surprise. Because that side of injury, I was told below the knee, and then when I wake up, it's
1: actually double above the knee.
0: Um, But I woke up maybe three days later in Germany. Um, Hmm.
1: You in Ramstein at that point?
0: uh, Launchstool. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Um, you're not supposed to wake up at any, at any point. I guess they try and keep you sedated until you get back to the States. I, I would, I woke up very briefly in in Germany and my squad leader so happened to be there. And he kind of told me what happened. Um, so I wasn't totally surprised. And obviously I was still very, very, very out of it. Um, on morphine and dilata and all these other painkillers. Uh, but I was a little bit surprised that it was above the knee, but you know, that's just what you have to do. There's a lot of different reasons that you could be below the knee on site and above the knee later, like infections from the dirt. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, my my brothers could have been seeing, you know, that there was flesh down below the knee. But whether or not there's anything viable down there uh, for a prosthetic, the, you know, the orthopedic surgeon could have seen it and been like, you know, there's no way there's going to be a prosthetic attacks to this, so we just have to amputate higher. Rob, this
1: is – This is the most fascinating part about what I've learned about you so far. Now, I already talked about everything you've done post-Marine Corps with uh, getting a bronze medal for rowing and then all of the marathons, riding your bike across America. That's the amazing sum of what you've done so far in your life post-event. My biggest question for you is what was it that took you from okay my legs are gone above the knees, but I am going to do this and this and this. I, I want to dig into your brain about what was it? Was there, an, a, was there a moment? Was there somebody that came and talked to you or was it just a, okay, I'm not done? Because there are a lot of people in that situation that be like, I quit. And you clearly have done the opposite. What What was it?
0: I think it was kind of a, it was a magical cocktail of a lot of different
1: things that I was just kind of lucky to
0: be imbued with. Um, And before I was in this situation, you know, part of it was um, the Marine Corps teaches you to detach from, from your emotions, you know, uh, and detach from really any situation and just keep moving forward with the mission. Um, And so I think that imbued in me uh, an uncanny ability to accept uh, very quickly accept a situation and just determine what I need to do in order to get to the next step of my mission. So, um, you know, if you're if you're out on a mission and something happens that really messes you up, well, you still have to accomplish the mission. So, and and the sooner you accept that your original, you know, plan is not going to work. Uh, the faster you can come up with this next, uh, you know, plan B, plan C and and Mm -hmm. transition to that. Um, So, you know, I was taught that in the Marine Corps. And so I was able to use that very effectively, you know, not knowing it really in the moment, but, you know, uh, I guess unconscious subconsciously. Um, So I realized that, you know, my mission for life isn't just, you know, being in the Marine Corps fighting terrorists, you know, overseas, that was, a plan to accomplish my mission but my mission was and everybody's mission is in their life you know have a meaningful life and have an enjoyable life and so you know being in the Marine Corps is just one way that I was able to to try and make that happen and when I stepped in the ID, well you know that way that wasn't necessarily over but I realized that the mission is still there you know I still want to have an enjoyable life I still want to have a meaningful life and so if I sit here and just dwell on the fact that my original plan didn't work and you know this is unfair and I don't want to be a double above me amputee, etc. Um, that's less I have to put into actually accomplishing this mission and coming up with plan B and plan C. Um, so it's partly that. Uh, I think Uh, or selflessly because uh, so for example, I knew that my mom was going to be really upset uh, by the news that I had been wounded. So just thinking about what was going to be best for her was that I'd be fine. I'd be okay. Um, And so because that was what was best for her and what was best for the rest of my family and my friends and actually my brothers that I left back in Afghanistan, you know, if word got back to them that I got wounded and I was you know, depressed and struggling and, and all this stuff you know how is that going to affect their combat readiness um and so me being okay was what was best for everybody in my life and so because of that i was able to manifest that in myself uh, a lot easier um so i was thinking about them before myself and that was what you know caused me to rise to the occasion and then later on you know that's kind of initial The stuff, And then later on, when I thought about doing the month of marathons and the bike ride across the country and all this stuff, it's kind of more about uh, that saying in the Marine Corps, once a Marine, always a Marine. So kind of still having the responsibility uh, to serve your country and and fight for your fellow Marines and fellow veterans. And, you know, that doesn't go away just because you're wounded or just because you retire. And so that was kind of my way of continuing that service uh, to both those people.
1: Well, I mean, that's incredibly selfless. The fact that you've lost both your legs above the knee and you're thinking, oh, I feel my mom, my, my boys back there. I, I mean, that's awesome. They got your legs, but they didn't get your mindset, which is incredible. And they can't get that, you know, uh, talk to me. Well, that's, that's very true. And it sounds like you made a very rapid transition to, okay, what's my next mission? I mean, that's kind of, the kind of thing that keeps people going in a situation like yours.
0: Yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, I wasn't thinking, you know, what's my next mission specifically. At that point, I was thinking, well, the mission is still there. You know, the, the have an enjoyable life, have a meaningful life, that's still there. How I'm going to do that, I don't know yet. But what I, do, what I know that I need to do is actually recover. So, you know, I need to get through this hospital stay. I need to get through all these surgeries I'm going to have. And then I need to go into physical therapy and learn how to use prosthetic legs. So the specific, you know, overall, mi- I guess the, the mission kind of became to recover uh-huh. and learn how to use the prosthetics to the best of my ability and get myself set up so that then I can transition to the next part of the mission, like kind of stage one and, you know, onward.
1: Did, um, I mean, physical and mental toughness, obviously you were a Marine, you got that in the Marine Corps, but what was it like pre Marine Corps for you? Cause you had to have some of this as a foundation, because I think without going in the Marine Corps with at least some of that as a foundation or a mindset, you, you don't just get that in basic training. You got to show up with some of that.
0: Um, I definitely, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't say I was necessarily mentally weak. Uh, I definitely had a lot more of a penchant for just giving up on things um, before the Marine Corps, I had a, I grew up on a farm, so I definitely had an incredible, um, work ethic, mm-hmm. um, and the ability to do things that I really didn't want to do. Like, uh, I grew up, you know, mucking horse stalls and weed whacking, you know, miles and miles of fence lines and, and that kind of thing, all things I really didn't want to do. Um, but I did them because my family needed me to uh so i had that uh I had that ability to kind of be able to do things that uh i don't really want to um so that's part of it uh but that and that's that's really all I had before I joined the marine Corps and then you know deploying uh to Iraq two thousand eight definitely aided me aided the mindset um you know that I needed to have in twenty ten when I got wounded in boot camp and and learning from all these other marines that I was with too
1: did um what well, i'd like to get into post event give me an idea of how long it took for you to recover before you start saying, all right, I think rowing sounds pretty cool. I think that's going to be my first physical mission. I'd say
0: three weeks after I was wounded, I started looking up sports that I could do three weeks. Yeah, not like, you know, awesome. in a way that I was like, I'm going to go to the Paralympics. But three weeks after I was wounded, I was laying in my hospital bed. I had a laptop. I was just like, man, I really like doing, I really like being active, you know, working out and doing sports and that kind of thing. And so maybe I don't, What can, you know, what sports can I do now as a double above the amputee? So I started researching disabled sports, found, you know, this disabled rowing, I think they call it. Adaptive rowing at the time. Now it's para rowing. Um, I remembered rowing workouts on the erg machine were a ball breaker. Um, so I was like, well, you know, I really love a good workout. So maybe this rowing, this adaptive rowing thing, can be something that I can pursue. And then as I looked into it more, I saw it was in the Paralympics. I was like, oh well, what the heck is the Paralympics? So I googled that as well. And like, huh, interesting. And so I had always been interested in the life of an athlete. I don't know why. Uh, it's just kind of, maybe this, that dedication to one thing, uh, for such a long time and, and competing at the highest level in the world. Um, and that kind of, yeah, that kind of dedication, that discipline that it requires to be able to do that. Maybe that was what attracted me to it. So, you know, I, I put, I, I knew I had to recover first. So I kind of put it in the back of my head that maybe this is something I could uh, come to later on. Uh, and maybe I could go to the Paralympics in 2012 Um, so I, you know, I, I definitely thought about it. I have a tendency to have a big idea very early on and then kind of put it to the side for a long time and then, you know, come back to it and be like, maybe I should do that. You know? So I think that's kind of how it worked where I, I was just looking for sports that I could do Mm -hmm. uh, during my recovery and just so happened to come upon the Paralympics. And then a lot of other things had to fall into place afterwards. But yeah, that's how it happened.
1: So I know you trained your ass off for that and the result of that was a bronze medal in the Paralympics. That That's epic. I mean, what was that experience like? It had to be totally rewarding. I mean, next mission, new life.
0: Yeah. You know, like I said, a lot of things had to fall into place. Like uh, I needed a female partner um, because the rowing, the double skull rowing in the uh, Paralympics is a guy and a girl. And, you know, just so happened that there was this uh, really incredible, a female rower that had been looking for a partner for years and years that had the dedication to go to the Paralympics. So, you know, we have, and our coaches just so happened to know each other and it turns out we worked well together and she was able to, you know, dedicate full-time training to it. But yeah, it was, it was 10 months of full-time, you know, twice a day. That's all we did was train and then eat and then go to bed um, for 10 months of that. And then there was a couple big races along the way where we had to, we had to qualify. We had to become the national team for the United States. So we had to win this one race. If we lose this race, we're done. Um, And that was, you know, we, that race race came about after three months of training together. Uh, And it was against a a crew that had a person that that was already on the national team. So it was like this really, and we won by 12 seconds, you know? Uh, And then after that, we had to qualify the boat for the Paralympics. You know, and if we don't come in first or second place, we're done. And this is, you know, world level Our first ever world level race. We're racing against people that have been in the Paralympics before we won that, you know, and then, um, then we get to the Paralympics and we're just kind of unknown. Nobody knows who the heck we are. We're just, these people that have been that are at this, the Paralympics 2012 have been like racing together for almost four years since 2008, you know? Mm-hmm. And so nobody knew who the heck we were. They just know that we did well in the, Paralympic qualifier. I don't know if anybody expected us to medal or anything, but we were able to, you know, pull that out uh, by 0. 0.2 of a second. And obviously, the race was high stress, and you know, by the end of the race, I couldn't feel my arms. You know, that, that
1: You know, that's how tired you are. So you're like, okay, I can't feel my legs or my arms anymore. Yeah,
0: like I don't know how I was. I was feathering the uh, yeah. the blades in the water. I don't know how I was holding on, but I held on it. But if you know, if I had backed off. Or if my rowing partner had backed off for a, even a split second, you know, we would have lost and been bent fourth, and this could have been a totally different story. Um, but we able to hold on. And so you said uh, that was point
1: 0.2, two seconds between point
0: two pod- of a second. Yeah.
1: Podium, and thanks for coming. That's awesome.
0: You know, in rowing, in a lot of sports, and rowing especially, that's you know, that's kind of a lot of races are decided by that tiny of a margin, and that's like you know, half a boat length if that. So yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the, it was an incredible experience and, you know, I, I walked away with a bronze medal, but you know, that's also where I met my wife, Pam. So I kind of walked away with something even better,
1: uh, <laughs> a gold and a bronze.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, she, 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 won gold
1: in that same Paralympic. Really? What, what, what event same in rowing?
0: Um, she was in a boat called the legs, Struck and arms, mixed Cox four. Uh, so a four person boat. I was in a two person boat, mm-hmm. um, and then she's a, an incredible athlete as well. You know, she won uh, Paralympic bronze and or Paralympic gold in 2012 and 2016, wow. and World Championships all the way from 2011 to 2015. So, see, that's six championships, which I like to tell people is as many as Michael Jordan. So
1: that's amazing. Um, let me ask you something do you Do you believe in luck, karma? Fate? Where are you at? Where are you at with that? Or everything happens for a reason? I I guess that's kind of fate, but I mean, do you have?
0: I don't know, man. I don't. I don't. I don't think I'm quite as spiritual as as believing in those things. Uh, Like there's some sort of force that's that's driving it. Um, Looking back in retrospect, and you know, if I hadn't been wounded, I wouldn't have met my wife, and I wouldn't have you know have everything I have now. And you know, so it's hard to deny that kind of feeling. Um, but I kind of do think that things just happen Mm -hmm. and then the way you react to them is the way that if you react in a certain way, then other opportunities are opened up. So if you react in the right way, then, you know, I made it possible to meet my wife by being open to the fact that, Hey, maybe I can use this as an opportunity to get into sports, uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise. And if I had just been like, well, my life's over, I guess. And then I would have never had that opportunity to go to the Paralympics and never would have met my wife. And, and you know, so, um, I think it's more about our reactions to life events that, you know, that just happened to you, um, more than, you know, fate or anything like that, luck or karma or anything like that.
1: So Paralympics. Awesome. Met your wife, you get, you get the podium, and you say to yourself, I think uh, I want to ride my bike across America. Talk to me about that. Yeah, you know, well, um,
0: I enjoyed rowing. And rowing was a very important part of my recovery because it was kind of my first big challenge. Like I'm going to dedicate myself to this and, and try and, you know, I, obviously I wanted to win in the Paralympics, but the fact that we got a bronze medal after 10 months is like a pretty huge accomplishment. And so I felt like it was a success. And so so it was very important in in regaining my self-confidence and my self-reliance and that kind of thing was was me being successful in this rowing thing. And so I did another year after that uh, and placed fourth in uh, world championships the next year. Um, But kind of over the course of the 2012 season and the 2013 season, it just didn't feel like it was something that I wanted to do long-term I couldn't. I didn't really know why. I just didn't feel. You know, I just didn't feel quite settled in 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 doing it long term. Mm-hmm. And so, I started. You know, thinking about other things that I could do um, to get me on the onto the right path. You know, which was, you know, towards this meaningful and and fulfilling and and enjoyable life for me. Um, and when I was in recovery, I, it took me nine months of practice to learn how to ride a, a normal bicycle again, which is something that I don't think any other double above knee amputee that went through Walter Reed has, you know, ever did. Uh, it's a very, even if there's like three or four guys in the whole world that can that can ride a bicycle as a double above knee amputee. So I wanted to put that to use, and so over, to, over the course of that time that I was learning, I kind of uh, used endurance athletes as a way to motivate myself. I really admired them. Um, and so I read books about the race across America and ultras and, you know, things like that. And so, you know, in my way, I kind of like, well, maybe, maybe one day I should ride my bike across the country or something, you know, that might be kind of fun and kind of cool thing to do. And so, you know, in, in 2012, 2013, I wasn't feeling quite in the right spot and I was just thinking about, well, then I kind of came back to that idea. And on top of that, I figured it could be a good way to raise money for veteran charities and raise awareness about, um, about veteran issues. Um, so it kind of had a double, you know, I I figured it would be enjoyable. And I also figured it would be a good way to push myself and test myself and also a good way to uh, continue to serve
1: it uh there has to be like i'm sure there were hundreds of memories from that but was there one sort of snapshot when you're riding across america on that bike you're like wow this i'll never forget this this is an epic moment for me i'll give you two um well i mean just pretty much
0: three i'll give you every time you know i rolled into a town and there was people waiting to greet me and and help me out i mean that's extremely powerful and just the number of people that heard about me wanting to do this and just, I've made lifelong friends, you know, from, uh, you know, I, I came up with the idea. I put it on Facebook and I just had a bunch of people have reached out to me. So I want to help you with this, you know, uh, particularly my friend, Tina, she, you know, was the friend of a childhood friend and she's like, I want to help you do this. And she was a huge part of, um, of getting me set up and and helping me with communications and that and that kind of stuff, because uh, I sucked at it. And then throughout the course of the ride, more and more people kind of came on. Like I rode through Boston, and a couple people there um, became huge parts of the rest of the ride. And then Pennsylvania, and, and then like kind of as I went, more and more people kind of like really latched on to the mission and became huge parts of.
1: Dude, were you like Forrest Gump on a bike, basically, and they just started? adding on and adding on before you know it, you've got this whole crew behind you.
0: Not quite. I mean, it was the winter time. It, I have to remember it was the polar vortex. So not many oh. people were riding with me <laughs> until I got to California. <laughs> uh, but that's, so that's one thing. And then second was when I was going through Missouri, uh, Ozark mountains, I actually hit a patch of black ice on my bike hey. um, and slipped and slammed into the, into the con- in the asphalt, but I was fine. But then so I was like, all right, well, it's, it's too dangerous to ride because it's been it, – it was, you know, way below freezing and it was raining and then, you know, perfect conditions for black ice. But um, so my I got back in the truck and my brother went over that same patch in the U-Haul and we ended up sliding off the road and tipping onto our side in the truck. Oh. And I was sitting there thinking like, oh, my God, the ride's over. Um, you know, this is a disaster. What are we going to do? This is going to take me like a month to get it. I'm going to have to get another truck. This one's probably ruined. Uh, but you know, we climbed out of there. I called the local fire department. They came out they got a wrecker, pulled it out. Truck started right up, you know, and there was no, not even the side view mirror was broken. It was just, all that had happened was the back of the, everything we had in the back of the hall was just kind of jumbled up. Um, so we drove back to the hotel and it rained and it warmed up a little bit and it's like twelve o'clock. I'm like, hey look, we gotta go, I have to go out and ride again because if we wait till tomorrow it's gonna be black ice again. So we hopped in the truck, drove out there. Ice had melted, so I rode through that area and then we we pushed on and so that's kind of uh, not sure what the lesson is in that, but um, you know, just letting the situation develop and then taking event not not letting a bad situation discombobulate you so much that you can't see clearly enough on what to do. Cause if I had just been totally freaked out by that whole thing, then I would have waited to the next day and it would have been too dangerous. And then who knows how long, how much longer I would have been stuck there. Uh, but because I was kind of able to put that aside, accept it, that it happened, process it, and then be like, well, actually what I need to do is, is actually ride again in the same day where, you know, we could, we had this big disaster. Um,
1: Rob, I got a feeling you're not the kind of guy who likes just kind of sitting around.
0: (laughs) Uh, from time to time. I like, I like sitting around, (laughs) uh, when I've earned it. Um, and then the third was probably riding through Southern Utah. There was this hundred mile stretch where there's no towns or anything. So it was just me and my brother and the temperatures had warmed up. It was probably like 70 degrees. I was in a t-shirt. It was February. um, And I was just riding through southern Utah, which is extremely beautiful. And Mm -hmm. that's like three, four days of just camping out and riding my bike. And so that was probably – and then the finish, obviously. But, yeah.
1: Well, um, as if you're not an overachiever enough, you decide, all right, uh, made it across America on a bike. I think I'm going to start running marathons. And you did 31 marathons in 31 days. I did the math. That's over 812 miles in, 30, in 31 days. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Rowing, check. Biking, cycling, check. Might as well start running.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of another, um, this is a good example of how a failure can uh, lead to a positive thing. I After I finished the bike ride, I wanted to make the Paralympics again in 2016, so I started training in triathlons. And I was able to get down to, uh, so that the Paralympic triathlon is a sprint. So the, the run part of it is five kilometers. And I was able to get down to, uh, 18 minute 5k, which is the max score for the Marine Corps PFT. Um, with like training once a week, um, for, you know, nine months. And I kind of, it kind of made me realize It, it, it made me remember my kind of natural penchant for running i'd always been a pretty decent runner all the way from from elementary school uh onward um i'd always been kind of a natural runner and it kind of reminded me of that and as a way to kind of uh after the 2015 season was over as a way to kind of have a little fun, I decided to run the Marine Corps marathon on no training. The furthest I'd ever run was five kilometers. And I said, ah, screw it. I can, I'll do it. I'll just take my time. And I ran it in like four hours and 12 minutes. And so that kind of showed me that I can run marathons too. And at that time I was still trained for the Paralympics. So I just kind of put that aside. But then ultimately I wasn't able to qualify for the Paralympics in 2016 uh, for a variety of reasons, um, and so, you know, in that moment, I had to think of, you know, what's next, and so, you know, I I really enjoyed the giving back aspect of the bike ride and and the endurance sports um, aspect of it, and I you know I enjoy I I I relearned that I was a pretty decent runner and I. Enjoyed running the Marine Corps Marathon, so
1: let me ask you this: So, rowing, cycling considered low impact, and unless of course you come off and fly over the handlebars. But those are both those are both low impact sports. Was there a concern? Okay, I'm going from low impact sports to holy shit, 812 miles in 31 days of running. Was I mean? Did you sit down with the docs? Did you adjust or go? work with different prosthetics considering this incredible challenge slash next mission that you put ahead of yourself.
0: I didn't, I didn't really sit down with any physicians and ask them about it just because nobody had ever done it before. So I knew they would, and generally doctors are going to have you play it safe because they sure. are, care about, they don't give a shit about your, you know, wanting to raise money. They care about your physical well-being. They have that Hippocratic oath. Sure. Um, and then, I, so yeah, I was very concerned about whether or not my hips would be able to withstand the force, um, whether or not you know my my stumps go into a prosthetic, mm-hmm. and so it's like my eye – the prosthetic hits and flexes, that force goes up into the prosthetic socket, which goes up into my leg. So whether or not the bottoms of my stumps would be able to withstand it, uh, and then on the inside, um, there's also friction there, yeah, because they're not you know no matter how comfortable of a socket you get, there's always going to be a little bit of friction. So um, whether or not my skin on my stumps would be able to, to withstand it too. Uh, and I, I didn't really work too much with the prosthetist on it because there's only so much you can do. You just get the, you get the socket comfortable and my sockets were very comfortable as comfortable as I, you know, I figured I could get them. Um, and there's only so many different running prostheses you can get. And, mm. you know, one of the things I did do with my process was figure out which one would be optimal and we decided on the one that I, I used.
1: Optimal as far as maybe uh absorbing some of the compression or
0: it's about efficiency more than anything. Um mm-hmm. the ones I used are this kind of C shaped one and they're pretty light. And the other ones are kind of these big J shaped one they have a lot of carbon fiber in them. They're more for high impact really high impact like sprinting type of stuff so they're very thick and very robust um and we decided you know the the speed that i was going to be running i was going to be more for this and i'm going to be running long distances so it's more about you know every ounce on your on the bottom of your foot uh when you're running is you know that over 26 miles that really adds up and so we decided on that. And then there's different categories of how much flex the, uh, the running prostheses had. So we based on your weight category and how fast you're going to be running, we kind of decided on this one. Um, So that's kind of how we came to that conclusion. But besides that, it was just more, is more of an athletic uh, endeavor. You know, these are the problems that I need to correct. You know, I need to, I need a huge cardiovascular engine in order to, to do this. I need, um, I need to fat adapt, uh, so that I can run at a speed, uh, that doesn't create, uh, you know, glycolysis and uh, which, you know, uses sugars. And then those create a ton of byproducts that really, that can do damage. So I need to run at a speed. Uh, I need to adapt that, to those systems, that, uh, kind of fat lipidology, uh, type of thing.
1: What were the splits or your mile times that you were trying to keep this is kind of the zone that's going to work best for me given, given what you're doing.
0: I would run it. Uh, I would just run by based on heart rates. I uh, use this okay. m- a method training method called the Maffetone method. Um, and it's essentially a different way of calculating your max aerobic heart rate. So I just wanted to stay in that aerobic zone where 99% of my, um, energy production is coming from, you know, fat, um, you know, burning fats instead of sugars. Um, and then, you know, I, so I just kind of did my little calculation on, well, well, this is the heart rate that I need to stay under. And so I did all my training under that heart rate. You try and get as close to it as you can. Um, cause that's going to be the you know best place to, uh, to train that, that system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then whenever I ran a marathon, I just had a couple watches that I would wear on either wrist and I would just check it frequently. You make sure it was under 150 beats per minute. And I would just, that's it that's all i would do i wouldn't look at any speed or anything but generally uh on a good day i was probably running 830s
1: oh, that's incredible what was what was your best time
0: um my best time running time so I, one of the things i wanted to do i knew i had to do was pace this pace each day and pace the whole thing entirely so what i did was I figured look, I have twenty-four hours to to, to run a marathon and drive my R V from that marathon to the next marathon and sleep. I have twenty four hours to do all that. So it's like there's no I don't have to be sprinting these marathons. I can I have some time to make it happen because this is all I'm doing. So I figured, all right, well, I want to pace these things, so I'll run what I would do is run twelve kilometers and take a twenty minute break run 12 kilometers, take a 20 minute break, run nine and a half kilometers, take a break and then run the last like eight, whatever it was. Um, and so, you know, when somebody asked me, well, how long would it take you to run a marathon? It kind of, yeah. it kind of depends it, on are you counting the rest times right. yeah. if you are, you know, so running time, my best time was three fifty or, um, three uh, running time. And then you add on like the hours worth of, yeah. you know, rest. I wish I would have had the the chance to run, you know, a marathon and just see how I, how fast I could have done one, but um didn't really have that chance.
1: Well, you should add it to the list. I mean, obviously you got tons of time on your hands right now and you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to uh I mean, I I still like I did the Marine Corps 50k last year, so I'm still Oh, that's awesome. Um, so yeah, maybe next time I do a, a marathon, I'll, I'll actually, you know, kind of train for time and, and instead of mm-hmm. just training for completion.
1: How come, why the number 31, was it uh, cause I don't want to do 32 or logistically that just made sense?
0: Yeah. Logistically it made sense. It well, was so I originally thought, well, maybe I'll do 20 because you know, the veteran suicide number is 20.
1: Right.
0: Um, but when I thought about that, I was like, you know, 20, 20 is not long enough, but because by the time, by the time I really get rolling and like people start hearing about it, I'm going to be done. So I knew, I figured I wanted, I want to do longer than 20. And I was like, well, maybe what about 50? And then, so it's like, well, 50 might be a little bit too long because after a certain amount of time, people are going to stop paying attention. And I wanted to, you know, the, the whole, the main reason to do it was creating a story that people were going to, really pay attention to for a long time. So I was like 50 people pipe. I figured people would probably attention pay attention to it for about a month um, before they started to move on to other things. So, like, all right, so we have a month while well, the longest month is 31 days. So that's it.
1: <laughs> so uh, for anybody out there who's never run a marathon, uh, Rob just said 20 isn't enough. <laughs> You're insane, dude. Um, Rob, I, Another question I'm dying to ask you here. When you hear people complaining, what is your reaction? Just complaining in general, complaining about, oh, I, I think I don't like my job. Uh, my back hurts. Do you? Are you just like, all right, whatever, or you got to be shitting me? Well, you know, everybody
0: – it's all just a matter of perspective. I complain too, you know, and I could be – you know, I complain about stuff, and I you probably usually catch myself you know a little bit more often than most people. But at the same time, if I complain, you know, you could you could have a quadruple amputee um, talking about well at least you have your arms, you know. Um, so like if I complain about my back hurting from walking around in prosthetics, or I complain about being hot, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm outside in you know July in Virginia, uh, it's hot because of my prosthetics or you know, they bottle in all the heat. Well, okay. There's a quadruple amputee out there somewhere that has those prosthetics and then arm prosthetics on too. So, you know, it's just a matter of perspective and um, my reaction would just be to maybe help the pe- the person see that perspective. And instead of seeing it as a, seeing whatever they're complaining about as a burden, maybe see it as an opportunity to, uh, uh, you know, use this as a, as a way to grow.
1: Well, that, kind of answers the next question a little bit, but for a veteran out there who's struggling in one way or another, physically, mentally, emotionally, or anybody who's out there just having a hard time. And a lot of people are right now. In addition to just your positive attitude, get a mission, don't quit. What, what would you say to those folks that could be helpful?
0: Yeah. I mean, that would be part of it. Uh, So the key to overcoming anything and enduring, anything and accomplishing anything in your life is what I've learned is selflessness. So whatever challenge you are facing, um, you can overcome it. If you think about why overcoming it is important to the people that you care about more than yourselves or the things that you care about more than yourself, the places that you care about more than yourself. Um, So figure out why those people or what their best interests necessitate you overcoming this thing or doing the thing that you really don't want to do. Um, or you just, or is really difficult. So let's say walking through a, a minefield with a metal detector. I didn't want to do that. Um, but my, my fellow Marines were, they needed me to do it. And so that's, and so I just, I never even hesitated. I just did it uh, you know, recovering for, for my mom, my mom needed me to, to be okay. So, uh, that's what was in her best interest. And I care about her more than I care about myself. So look, I was okay. And then, you know, the bike ride, the month of marathons, well, I figured I, there's very few people I care about more than my fellow veterans, uh, uh, you know, Marines and any kind of veteran. And so, what, we, what I felt like we needed uh, at that time was a positive story that uh, everybody can, can use because in the media lately, it's like the picture of a veteran is either they're either a war hero overseas or they come home and they're a basket case. Yeah. Like there's no, there aren't a whole lot of positive coming home stories uh, in the media right now. And So that's I set out to create that story because um, I saw that need. And so in order to create that story, while well, I had to go run a bunch of marathons and ride my bike across the country, I didn't, you know, between October 12th and November 11th of the 2017, I didn't really want to wake up and run 42.2 kilometers in circles uh, or back and forth, you know. I didn't want to have to run 23 times around the Harlem mirror in Central Park. <laughs> uh, you know, while my, I, in the last four days, I had a back injury in Nashville. I didn't want to have to wake up and feel this, you know, kind of excruciating, sharp pain go up my back, you know, every time I landed on my right foot, and then have to do that eighty thousand times. I didn't want to have to do any of that stuff, but I did it because my fellow veterans, my fellow Marines, um, were relying on me to to make that happen, to finish this story, to create this story, and make it successful. Uh, and so, and and that's that's the key. So. If, figuring out why the best interests of the people that you care about more than yourself, your, your mom, your dad, your wife, your kids, your friends, why their best interest necessitates you to overcome whatever this is or do whatever it is you don't really want to do. And then, so that's the key to, to making it happen. But uh, you know, it's also this, I call it use the weight is my, uh, my mantra there. Uh, you know, life's going to have challenges that are unexpected and it's kind of like being in the gym with a barbell where it's on your shoulders, you know, this weight's on your shoulders and, you know, that weight's kind of like this challenge or a stress that's in your life. And so when you, when it's on your shoulders, you have two options. You know, your first option is just sit there with it, resist it, you know, hold, you know, hold on to it for as long as you can, but eventually, Hey, your energy is finite. You're going to get weighed down by it the stress are going to wear you down, and you're just going to kind of slowly sink down to the floor until eventually that you fall over because you can't hold it anymore and the weight's on your back, you know, pinned across your back, can't do anything with it, uh, can't help yourself, can't help anybody. Or when that weight's on your shoulders, you can take it and you can strict press it, and you do it again and again and again. And every time you put that weight over your head, you adapt to it a little bit more and more and more, or you adapt to that stress that you have in your life and eventually you start because you adapted to that weight. Now you can handle even bigger weights, bigger stresses, bigger challenges in your life um, until it gets to a point where eventually there's not enough weight in the gym. Um, there's not a big enough stress in the world that that can stop you. Uh, and you have to go out and you have to do what I call create the weight where, you know, there's the gyms run out of weight. So you got to be like Bruce Willis in, uh in unbreakable where you get the paint cans and you put them on the side of your barbell too. You know, you have, to, you have to go out and find ways that you can make your life more challenging so that you can continue to grow. Um, and so that's the when – you, whenever you're faced with a challenge or a stress, you need to have that attitude that how can I use this to my advantage to become stronger, uh, become better. And then when that time gets, uh, gets tough, uh, when it becomes difficult, you know, you use the selfless purpose that you have behind it um, to get through those tough times. So those two things kind of in, in tandem.
1: Well, I, I haven't met anybody that's as inspiring as you in a long time. So I per I, I mean it. I really do genuinely mean it. I personally want to thank you. If anybody is out there looking for somebody to be a public speaker at their function, I can't think of anybody better. Rob, I know you out there. You've done this and you're currently doing some public speaking. How can somebody get a hold of you for that?
0: At my website, robjonesjourney.com um my email is rob at gmail.com um but yeah you know that's that's what i that's what i do uh you know i i can't just run 31 marathons in 31 days every year well maybe i could but i don't want to (laughs) or maybe it's uh you should go you can go on my website and look up the essay i can't um it's all about that phrase anyway um i'm not going to i'll say Um, so one way that I can continue to, uh, do good in this world is by continuing to tell this story that I've created, uh, to as many people and get it in front of as many people as possible. So yeah, public speaking and, and doing this kind of thing, um, at any kind of event, I like to go into schools too, um, is a way for me to continue to do that. So that's, you know, a main mission of mine is to, uh, to do more and more public speaking.
1: Well, Rob, your message is amazing. It really is. Your your life is amazing, and I mean, this is only a few chapters in. Basically, uh, I can't I can't wait to see what the next insane mission is you're going to create. Uh, you live on a farm. You live on a working farm with your wife. What's it like? What's what's farm life like? Is it? Oh, uh,
0: it's um, I grew up on a farm too. About so my the farm is uh, it's my wife's you know business. It's her. It's her mission, and then my mission is to help her uh, make, it, make it a success when I when I can. Uh, obviously, I have my own stuff I'm working on um, mm-hmm. in my own life, but uh, whenever she needs my help with a big project, like building the big deer fence out there, or uh, she's got a big chicken coop she's building right now for chickens, so I, I try and help her as much as I can with that. Uh, we have a son, uh, Harry, who's uh, five months old, so love spending time with him. Um, and so, yeah, part of my helping with the farm is to make sure I, you know, take him, um, to make sure that she can do, you know, her stuff out, out on the farm and make her business successful. So it's great. I love it. Um, love having fresh eggs every day, love having fresh vegetables every day. Um, but what I love more is just, you know, helping my wife, you know, accomplish her, um, you know, her dream, which is, is to run this farm and make it a success. So.
1: Well, Rob, I mean it, incredibly inspiring. I have got to step up my game after <laughs> chatting with you. I'm like, Jesus, I only did a half marathon. You don't get shin splints anymore, so that's got to be kind of caloric. Cool, right? Is that a bonus?
0: <laughs> that's true. I don't get shin splints. I had, There are so many people that I would see uh, Instagram comments where people are like, yeah, well, he doesn't have legs, so it's not oh, as hard. So <laughs> I think if people are just trying to be funny, um, or beyond I will anger. tell you it does hurt. <laughs>
1: yeah I can only imagine. What's next?
0: Um, yeah, you know, right now I'm just working on finishing my my book, like I said, uh, um, I have uh, a first draft written of a memoir, and so that, and then just trying to uh, get this speaking um, speaking thing going so I can you know tell my story to as many people as possible. Um, those are two of the things I'm working on. I also have one other thing, but I'm not ready to talk about it just yet because I still need to do a little more more planning. Um, But uh, those are the two things I'm primarily working on right now is getting this book out and and doing as many speaking engagements as I can in order to just continue to tell the story.
1: Well, Well, it's it's an amazing amazing story, story and and I can't can't wait to to see what's what's next. next, Honestly, honestly, I am looking forward forward to reading your your book. book. Uh, Will Uh, you get get your website website again, again. Rob?
0: Yeah, robjonesjourney.com. Awesome. And then that's all my social media is at robjonesjourney.
1: Well, buddy – thank you really thank you for your time thank you for your service thank you for what you're doing incredibly inspiring and we need this right now i mean we need it more than ever since i've been around and uh folks honestly go to his website book this guy for public speaking get the message out there uh anything from you man
0: that's. I mean, I really appreciate you uh, giving me this opportunity to come talk to you. I hope. I hope that we can uh, meet each other in person someday, uh, without the risk of a, a world-killing virus <laughs> stopping us. Uh, you know, thank you for what you did in the in the seals and for what you're doing with uh, your books and everything. And I just really appreciate the opportunity, brother.
1: Well, thank you, man. I look forward to meeting you in person. We'll grab a cold beer, and uh, I got to hear some more stories. Buddy, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Folks, if you're not inspired by what you just heard, then you just are beyond being inspired. All right? Share this. Share it with your friends, your family, coworkers, anybody you care about. And subscribe and listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get yours so you can be a survivor, not a statistic. Rob Jones, thank you so much, brother. Can You Survive This Podcast is a Cavalry Audio production recorded live from The Bunker in Denver, Colorado. Hosted by me, Kate Courtley. Produced by Brandon Morgan and Kate Courtley. Associate producer is Jeff Apple. Executive produced by Keegan Rosenberger and Dana Brunetti.